0: Gentlemen, children of all ages, welcome to this Fuds on Film podcast. I am Scott Morris, and distracting me from the prospect of thermonuclear Armageddon today is Drew Tavendale. Hello,
1: oh, and I'm probably being quite unsuccessful in that because we're all going to die. <laughs> isn't the world fab?
0: But, Drew, the important thing is that we're not dead yet, somehow. So, until then, all we can really <laughs> do is talk about films because, well, it's all we've really got a track record for, isn't
1: it? Yes, and it's probably. A bit less depressed, a bit less, a bit less. Yes, that's the right word. (laughs) I I can't even use basic English anymore. I'm so terrified by the prospect. (laughs) It's a a bit less depressing than what's going on in the world right now.
0: Yes, a bit fewer depressing. Uh, So, we have a grab bag of random films, what we done saw at the cinemas in the last month or so, to talk about today. And the first one of those is Beauty and the Beast. So, Drew, why don't you tell the good people a little
1: bit about that? Do you want me to actually tell them or do you want me to tell you why I shouldn't? The Um, question is ambiguous.
0: I will leave the answer up to you. (laughs) I think you get bonus credit if you answer both parts, but I think only one will be necessary for a passing grade.
1: (laughs) Well, actually, I don't have much of a why I don't, because uh, why don't I because I wrote this and I may as well use it. <laughs> Disney have never shied away from meddling with their own legacy, much as most of us wish they would. While fans may consider their animated classic sacrosanct, Disney continue to piss all over them with gay abandon, regularly presenting us with straight-to-DVD bilge like Aladdin and the King of Thieves and The Jungle Book 2. So it's certainly no surprise that they would, without trepidation, continue their recent trend of making live-action adaptations of their animation and follow last year's The Jungle Book with another of their most beloved titles, Beauty and the Beast. Unlike that Kipling adaptation though, this live-action take on the classic French fairy tale hoves pretty close to the Academy Award winning 1991 cartoon. Adventurously minded, book-loving Belle, Emma Watson, lives in a small French town with her engineer father, Kevin Kline, where her days mostly consist of domestic chores, fending off the unwanted attentions of former soldier Gaston, Luke Evans, and being demonised by the populace for having the temerity to teach a girl to read. The shameless hussy. (laughs) Getting lost on his way home from a trip, Bell's father stumbles on an enchanted castle and makes the mistake of taking a rose from the garden without permission. He is imprisoned by the beast a human prince under a spell for being both a bounder and a cad <laughs> and is only set free when Belle trades herself for her father and agrees to stay in the castle with the beast and his talking anthropomorphic furniture. Now, you know how this goes from here. It's a tale as old as time, yada yada yada. Though I do have my doubts about just how timeless the whole girl on bison romance thing really is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me just check my exams or search history or something as well. Most of the cast, necessarily, are CG creations, but as far as the human portions go, Emma Watson is quite engaging as Belle, though she never seems quite comfortable when being asked to sing. Emma Thompson is game as Mrs. Potts, but she just doesn't have the same charisma as Angela Lansbury, note to self. To add to the list of things I never thought I'd do, discussing the relative charisma of talking teapots, (laughs) Kevin Kline gives a Kevin Kline performance which is to say that he is bland, anodyne and entirely forgettable. (laughs) And Luke Evans is a just as preening, but far more entertaining Gaston than the Celdron version. The real stars though are the musical set pieces. I don't care much for the music, but the colourful and lively song and dance sequences are the definite highlights and regularly cropped up just at the point where my interest was flagging. And also I'd like to say that the apparently controversial scene with the gay character is both really quite innocent, perhaps even sweet, and also the highlight of the whole show, (laughs) even if the character is an antiquated stereotype. The biggest issue I have is an issue I've always had with this sort of fairy tale, and this one in particular, and that is that the romance simply isn't tenable. We are never shown any reason why Belle would fall in love with the beast. You know the beast, the one who imprisoned both her and her father without trial. And I, I, he stole
0: I think, a rose! It's, <laughs> it's open and shut case, he stole a rose. It was a nice rose, he, only he stole st-
1: it. He only stole a loaf of rose.
0: It really tied that rose garden together. <laughs>
1: now, I think most people um, seem to just accept these things in this context, but it has always bothered me that the whole crux of such stories is apparently based on Stockholm Syndrome. But a pretty princess and some musical numbers are apparently more than enough for everyone else, so I guess I'm the weirdo.
0: Apparently, the person that first came up with the Stockholm Syndrome term has looked at this and said that this is not Stockholm Syndrome, although it's still pretty creepy. I don't know if he said that part, but (laughs) it, it is certainly still pretty creepy in my opinion.
1: I can only give a mild recommendation to watch Beauty and the Beast, but I will add the proviso that I never liked the animation and enjoyed this considerably more though I suspect that just means purists will hate it. But its polish and flair are undeniable, even despite the presence of Ewan McGregor as a Frenchman, because, well, why wouldn't Ewan McGregor be <laughs> in as a Frenchman? Uh, and I suspect most people who enjoy the original will get a lot from this.
0: Yeah, I did not have any particular dog in this hunt, as I probably have mentioned some podcasts pass him. I have curiously little knowledge of any disney stuff i somehow didn't really watch any of it as a kid or if i did it was either so early i couldn't remember it and then once i had helped some taste decided i didn't like this sort of garbage oh, yes because
1: <laughs> for the most I, i'm sorry Scott, i don't want to interrupt you about i think something we shared there i've never really hardened the regard for disney that so many people do i mean there, there are a couple yeah. gems that i really genuinely love and then the rest of it's like uh, princesses and bland singing uh, no thanks
0: and I've never had the real urge to go back and watch too many of them because, I mean, some of the first Disney stuff that I really remember watching was when I started reviewing it for our one-liner site back in the day. And that was really at the uh, the start of Disney's slide into incredible sub-mediocrity <laughs> before sort of the, the whole kind of Pixar thing kind of saved them a little bit. But I don't think I've ever seen Beauty and the Beast, the cartoon version, outside of some clip shows here and there of the musical numbers, which... are. Uh, Seem to get doled out quite regularly. So I, I didn't know that much at least, mm-hmm. but as to the whole rest of the story, didn't actually know it. So uh, yeah, as I say, I have no particular dog in this hunt. Um, I There are a few people who, the the more devoted fans, shall we say, I was going to say Die Hard, but that's a bit pejorative, but yeah, the more devoted fans of the uh, animated film don't like this person quite so much. And I suppose I can see where they're coming from and maybe we'll circle back to that when we talk about Ghost in the Shell. Uh, but I... Actually, kind of liked it. It, it. it entertained me quite well for the most part. Um, it's too long. I think there's probably half an hour that could be cut there out of it. Some of the musical numbers start off really great and then just go on for like a verse and a half too long. Uh, mm-hmm. I think. And get out b- 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 wearing
1: the, the beer guesting, which was one of the big highlights of the the animation, I mm-hmm. think it just it's like I don't know whether because they thought they needed to make more of a deal of that than maybe any other number. Yeah. But it just feels like it goes on for a bit too long. It, it happens in like another couple of places.
0: Yeah, once it is, it's eighth stanza. It's like, no, no thank you. Just just stop. I don't want to be your guest anymore. I'm tired of being your guest. I'm, I'm completely worn out of your hospitality. But yeah, uh, I love when a film has the, uh, let's just say, the certitude to go and make such ludicrous, ludicrous generalisations in the accents because... A film can do no wrong if it has Ewan McGregor a haw he hawing the hell out of his lines. And he really does a-ho-he-ho the hell out of his lines. I've never heard such an accent outside of hello, hello uh, um, in in
1: a mainstream film. I lived in France for five months last year and I don't recall once hearing an accent that sounded even vaguely (laughs) like anything in that film. Yeah, I mean, it's,
0: it's really funny, but I'm assuming that Ewan McGregor is just playing this as an elaborate rib on his French wife. Um, I don't know what the deal is with that. But yes, uh, other than that, I actually really enjoyed it. I think probably the linchpin of it is Luke Evans, who I don't think I've had thoughts one way or the other about Luke Evans and anything before now. I can't think of anything he's been particularly good or bad in, but yeah, I mean, he's can...
1: pretty tremendous as guest Gaston. Um, I really enjoyed watching him. So I've been aware of him, I know he was in high rise and things sort of like picture him and a few things, but he's never been anywhere that particularly stood out for me in the way you're saying. Uh, as much as I've got yeah. a good memory, so I was like, yeah, okay, I know who he is. That Welsh fella. Yes, okay. Mm-hmm. But yeah, because the the animated version of Gaston is is just a kinda I, he's quite flat. He's like a one-dimensional character. Right. Whereas and he's kinda he's like a slightly CD villain and there's not anything yeah. to really engage with him in the the animation whereas Luke Evans here He's got, as I said earlier, he's got the same preening and stuff, but he's funny because he's lacked so much self-awareness, despite being so full of himself. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just really nicely played. It's, it's a lot. I don't think it's just writing. Really, a lot of that is coming from the performance.
0: Yeah. And it's a nice little interplay with him and um, Josh Gad as LeFou, the... -hmm. This hype man's come psychic. Um, It's it's a nice little double act. I think it just works pretty well for the film. Emma Watson has enough dramatic chops to carry this sort of thing. As you say, the actual relationship, I agree, is a bit tepid. It's not not exactly romance for the ages. And uh, yes, it is, as mentioned, really weird. But then again, it's a film with a talking teapot. So what are you going to (laughs) do?
1: The romance does seem to go along the lines of proximity plus time must-equal um, romance <laughs> without ever yes. showing you any reason for them to have changed their feelings for each other. Like uh, You know, just it's mm-hmm. an availability heuristic.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and my only other note, I think, is that while the production design is lavish, it's perhaps a touch too gaudy for my comfort. I was wondering though, is that an issue caused by optimising it for a 3D viewing rather than the 2D one, what I done saw. Because I think they might have just amped up the saturation and what the brightness of a few scenes just so it looks a bit better in 3D than it did for 2D. Uh, I might, might be over analysing that a bit. But yeah, it's a bit overly lavish for my tastes. But that's a minor nitpick in a film that otherwise I enjoyed quite a lot. So um, mm, I, yeah, surprisingly
1: quite entertained by it. Yeah man, I, I think I obviously didn't enjoy it quite so much as you did. Unfortunately like I say I didn't enjoy it at all. But I did. Um, although I said I it flagged every now and then for me and it's certainly too long. But the fact that I didn't like mm-hmm. the animation at all and I am i didn't like the animation at all in any way, shape or form and I found this passively entertaining. To your point about the, I think the word you use is lavishness, but I would perhaps use the word garishness of the costumes and yeah. the <laughs> set. And I don't know if it's a 3D thing or it's just trying to have more of the saturation of the, the animation. I think maybe it's yeah. that. Because they are, you mentioned earlier about purists having issues. And I wonder if actually there are issues that it's trying to be too much like the animation and not yeah. being accepting <laughs> enough of the fact that the medium has changed. I remember that yeah. knowing the, the producer's intent and then I can't really speak to it, but it feels to me more like maybe it's just trying to have that, the rich saturated colours of animation rather than it being a technical byproduct of 3D. D I don't right. know. That makes more sense for our apps, perhaps.
0: But uh, yeah, uh, as I say, I think we more or less agree, it definitely flies in places. It's at least half an hour too long, but for the most part, quite enjoyable. So yeah, if you have any interest at all, I would certainly recommend seeking it out.
1: Okay then, Scott. Get out. Had enough of you. Leave. Oh, sorry, wait, this is a list, not an instruction. Tell us about get out, Scott.
0: <laughs> get out. Before we say word one on get out, I think that this... More than most films we talk about on our podcast uh, uh, would benefit from you not knowing anything at all about it, to the extent that if you've seen the trailer for Get Out, you've probably been overexposed to it. Uh, So listen further at your own peril. Consider this the uh, spoiler warning klaxon having been thoroughly sounded early doors. (coughs) Photographer Chris Washington, played by Daniel Kaluuya, is nervous about meeting girlfriend Rose Armitage. Alison Williams' parents for the first time, and not just the usual apprehensions as he's a black guy heading into a very white suburb to meet a very white family. Not that Rosie's parents, neurosurgeon Dean Bradley Whitford and hypnotherapist Missy Catherine Keener, disapprove of interracial relationships, but their attempts, Dean's in particular, at making Chris feel welcome are clumsy to the point of, if not unintentional racism, at least clothiered insensitivity. It transpires that Rose has forgotten that this particular upcoming weekend is her parents' annual neighbourhood get-together. So, all in all, a great weekend of uneasy social interaction is promised. It's enough to drive Chris to smoking, although Missy thinks that she can hypnotise that craving out of him. Chris gets some sympathy over the phone from his friend and TSA officer Rod Williams, Milton Howery, although mainly he gets a repeat of Rod's advice that it was a bad idea to go in the first instance. And he's then proven correct over the course of the film. Before long, not only has Rosie's exuberant, weird brother Jeremy Caleb, Laundry Jones, shown up, but the assorted oddballs of the neighbourhood have all who treat Chris, well, pretty weirdly. Really weirdly, in fact. And Chris notices that the behaviour of the very few black people around is also, well, weird. <laughs> really weird. And lo, weird things are indeed afoot, the details of which I suppose are best left to those who want to find them out themselves. Now, I was rather looking forward to Get Out, as I've been getting good notices from people who normally know their onions and also horror films, it primarily being the horror film expertise uh, that I was relying upon, the onion questions will just have to be resolved another day. Get Out does a number of things that I like quite well, and I found myself very much wanting to like it. It's a likable film. The actors and performances are likable. It's likably written. The general concept is likable. It's got likable production values. I didn't like it. By which I don't mean to say that I hated it or even disliked it. It's still a much better film than most horrors. Unfortunately, it's just a little bit frustrating because it seems like with minor changes it would be a much more enjoyable film. Primarily it could do with building a bit more tension in the opening stretches. Which it wasn't doing too bad a job of for about 15 minutes, uh, but a lot of that tension deflates when the hypnosis element is introduced, and it's introduced quite early indeed. It's not the silliest thing that the film will throw at you, but I'd rather all of this nonsensical stuff was thrown at us in quick succession over the last half hour, rather than incrementing the silliness levels in half hour segments. But it does not, and for my liking at least, gives us rather too long to think about what it's proposing, and the myriad reasons it makes no sense at all in its own internal logic, let alone scientifically. I can't really describe any of that without being too spoilery, so you'll just have to trust me on that one. I am quite a trustworthy person. It's more or less that one structural decision that holds the rest of the film. Everything else, more or less, works quite well, and it's an unexpectedly assured outing for first-time director Jordan Peele. Perhaps unsurprisingly... It works better when it's being funny than when it's being scary, and indeed it's funny enough that I can almost recommend it on that basis alone. Uh, Peel, of course, being part of a, a comedy partnership that's got some, some play recently. I suppose it's worth pointing out again that I'm just generally less enamoured about the concept of horror movies in general than a lot of people, so to an extent that it's only the absolute best that I like, and on this calibration scale, this suggests that this is not an all-time classic, but for those audiences more forgiving of the genre, a very solid outing. And of course, by far the most fanciful suggestion in this movie is that people would willingly use Windows mobile phones in
1: 2017.
0: <laughs> now that really would require brainwashing. Yes, that, that's quite a stretch,
1: isn't it? Yes. How about breaking the suspension of disbelief? He's still using <laughs> a Windows phone. Really? <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> I did go into this all knowing more or less nothing about it, um, right. which is the best way to be, I guess. <sighs> I didn't see the trailer. I'd heard a bit about it, but people were talking about it. I knew there was some sort of element of racism or racial interactions in it, and that's about all I knew. All that and the fact that the man who I can only ever think of as parking paddle whale, thanks to Harry Enfield, and I'm sorry um, to the actor, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry Daniel, but I knew he was in it and that was about it. Now, Even less than you, Scott, am I a fan of horror films? Now, not to make a sweeping generalisation, but horror films are universally awful. Uh, (laughs) Yes, we wouldn't want to make a sweeping
0: generalisation, yeah.
1: (laughs) No, in fact, they are all bad because the ones that aren't terrible are so few and far between as to be easily dismissed as a statistical anomaly and therefore not worth counting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I said you know every now and then you a film will pop up and it's basically comes down to being you know this year's if not good horror then non-terrible horror yes. uh, I believe Get Out is it for this year and yeah you know what it's it's okay <laughs> for me this is over long and it it takes a long time to get going that whole road trip and the uh, um, them i getting prepared to go and then just the uh, with sort of a side with them hitting the deer and I don't think that's giving anything away it's like that's just seems to go nowhere it doesn't really add anything to the film for me but then it gets it gets a lot interesting. it's like okay these people are acting really weird and, and I know nothing about this film what's going on here really I had no idea where it was going so that's good I dragged me in a bit there I'm like why are these people acting so strangely and then the tension builds up but the mystery builds and I was like oh this is quite interesting and then, as you mentioned, the hypnosis starts, and I'm like, oh, okay, this is a <laughs> bit pseudosciencey for me, but it's a horror film. I'll, I'll let it slide just now, okay? And then you begin to find out a bit more about what's going on, and that people know more than you think they do. And i like, okay, right, It's almost like a thriller element to that now, quite enjoying that. And then it turned into a 1950s B movie, <laughs> and I lefty cinema, uh, <laughs> at least mentally. Yeah, there, there are elements in this that I thought were interesting and the let's say, subtext of the kind of liberal, I don't know, approach, not quite Look, the right word. I'm, right. I'm going to have so my big,
0: I'm a, I'm a big buzzer here, right? Because one comment that's coming that about this film uh, and it's you in a few other things as well, we'll get onto it, but this is one of our Regular correspondence app, like, writes on Twitter, Dub Machine. Get Out, great horror film about the rarely discussed ways in which racism manifests in the liberals of the US of A. And there's this whole Guardian article that I'll include a link to in the show notes where it's talking about how the villains aren't Southern Ednex or you neo-Nazi know, skinheads, blah, blah, blah. It's, uh, it's the kind of people who read The Guardian, kind of people who shop at Trader Joe's, donate to the Civil Liberties Union, things like that. And, and how <laughs> it shows that how, however unintentionally these same people can make life so hard and uncomfortable for black people. It exposes a liberal ignorance and hubris that has been allowed to fester. It's an attitude in arrogance, which in the film leads to a horrific final solution, but in reality it leads to complacency that's just as dangerous. I don't understand that, because I've never done the kind of things that happen in this film, and I don't think you can really hold these people up as being good examples of forward-thinking liberalism, given what they do to people. It doesn't make any sense. I don't understand yes. where this is coming from. <laughs>
1: I'd also, it's not... Where I was going, either I was just going to say it's um, a sort of liberal trend of maybe trying too hard, like, um, over eagerness, over earnestness, trying to be too hip was really um, all I was going with that. I wasn't. I would like uh, to slide with to, that to the, of well, the,
0: the kind of argument that has taken this to the nth degree just makes my head
1: spin. I don't understand how anyone's getting that from it. I was just amused by the fact that it's like you kind know, of the efforts to show that like the extra FSD people were making to show that they were not races of like you're trying too hard and just becoming almost patronising and it's, that's as yeah. far as I would go
0: and that's that's the, that's the element that I liked yeah I did like that element of the film yeah, because um, I wish I'd have done that for a bit longer that would have built more tension for me I think if they'd, they'd kind of built up that sort of I'm trying quite hard to be friendly but there's still that kind of undercurrent of something not
1: friendly quite yeah. well and underneath um, it so I mean that's I mean that idea was kind of interesting and I mean I think your the article you're quoting it really goes too far, but there's perhaps the idea that, you know, if you sort of try too hard in that other way that you, you become patronising. It's not racism, but it's, yeah. it's a way to like belittle people while yeah. you know, without that being the intention. And I was about to say that maybe a horror film is not the place to explore that, but then why not? why should it be stuck to one genre to explore that sort of thing yeah but then the film just turned, as I say turns out the 1950s B-movie and like <laughs> hey, none of this makes any sense at all and like there's there were parts of me that really wanted to to say ah oh, this is really good but honestly by the midway point of this film I mean it's definitely too long I know another film where this could do with a good half hour being cut out of it but by the midway point of this film I was just bored mm. I just felt no tension and I'm like okay but there's something weird going on. Would you get it already? And no, nothing happens, and nothing happens. And instead of it building attention, I'm just like, I'm fed up. Can you please get to the point already? Yeah. Uh, and then you find out, and it's like, okay, this is really, really, really stupid. It has nothing to do with race <laughs> It's just, it, it's a B movie. And when that, when you see the, the circumstances of the procedure, I think hopefully that would make it, um, <laughs> yeah, like mention as little as possible about what actually happens but when you see the circumstance of the procedure and i just burst out laughing that's just ludicrous yes. <laughs> you've just any goodwill that a film had built up at that point evaporated in that moment because they it changed the tone so much it was such a stupid looking thing yeah uh, and yeah I, I honestly and at no point was this film in any way even vaguely scary uh, and really i would say that maybe it it's best points it's closer to a thriller than a horror which is fine because I prefer thrillers anyway because they're not terrible uh, <laughs> but it's I was like again I had my hopes built up by people talking so much good about a horror film and I'm like but it's really boring Um, really what, what are people seeing about this it's just really really dull I know you mentioned there was humour in it particularly with his you kind know, of like the comic relief of his friend that works the TSA yeah and that I did find entertaining, but at the same time, I was like, well, this is undermining everything. All of the tension is just gone. <laughs> it's, this isn't breaking the tension, it's just completely undermining it. And yeah. In the end, once again, I'm let down by a supposed horror movie because it was just, it wasn't awful in the way it's so many. I wasn't screaming at the screen and saying, this is stupid. It makes no sense. It was really badly made or written. It was, it's just boring, which in some ways is a worse crime.
0: I wouldn't go that far. I don't think I was bored by much of it. I think. The interesting thing about Get Out is that it is two-thirds of a really good film, but it's two different thirds from different films. <laughs> See, the Dolphin <the>, <laughs> stretches. I know it does start off a bit slow, but I kind of like that. That kind of build up into the point where Hypnotism introduced, where, where it just seems like people are just acting really weirdly, I thought was quite enjoyable and I would have liked to have seen that extended out. Uh, and I liked to an extent to, in a different regard the last third where it just goes off the walls mental 50s B-movie shock. <laughs> uh, because I've, I've got a weakness for that sort of thing and I thought it was really quite funny not scary at any point but I thought all that stuff was really quite funny when, when you find out that kind of final reveal of what's actually going on there all the way up to the end I would laugh quite a bit at that point that kept me quite entertained but for me the middle third dragged quite a lot and there's a, a section where she'd really been ratcheting up the tension, but I just I didn't like it at that point because it was just getting a bit silly. Uh, when it, it was getting too silly to be tense or enjoyable, but then it, then it sort of cranked up a gear and got silly enough to be stupid, which I quite enjoyed. So uh, yeah, but I, a very interesting sort of graph of interest versus time for this film. Uh, which probably doesn't correlate to a lot of no. other people's. But that's, that's why I think at least the, um, <laughs> it entertained me enough by the end that I kind of, kind of give it a mild recommendation. But unfortunately, yes, I agree. Not quite the, living up to the hype that it had, it had garnered.
1: No, um, you talking about the end there, Scott Turman. See, if the film had had that, that sort of daft tone throughout, I mm-hmm. thoroughly suspect I would have enjoyed it quite a lot uh, because it makes me think of either films that were seriously like that or films that kind of made fun of that. There was yeah. a film I saw at the Edinburgh International Film Festival a few years ago called The Trail of the Screaming Forehead. Mm-hmm. And it had that same sort of idea, although that actually mean, it ran out of steam about a third of the way in, as opposed to yeah. actually picking up steam a third of the way in. But if it had kept that sort of silly tone throughout, and, and still what you can make its comments or whatever else, and like, yeah, that would be okay, but it's like, this is a different film. Yeah. What, what happens, <laughs> like, two yeah. thirds yeah. of the way in, it's like... But is this the same film? (laughs) Have I fallen asleep and missed some sort of really important joining scene here? Because it's just not... It's nothing to do with what happened before at all. (laughs) Because the tone, the tone and the events are just so different. And it just, to me, it felt like um, on a dime, it just completely changed. Yeah, certainly (laughs) did. To be it's by no means bad, but it's... Also, it's by, by no means good and for the most part it bored me and then vaguely bewildered me because of its complete change in tone at the end. Very yeah, well, certainly,
0: Certainly the last thing you want in cinema is to be bored, so yes. Uh, one other point on the old Twitters, or good friends at the Magic Lantern podcast, at lantern underscore cast on the Twitters, Get Out was brilliant, tense from the first frame and remarkably assured. Definitely did not look like a debut feature. I certainly agree with the last part of that. I'm not sure how (laughs) tense I found it. I don't know if if you agree, Drew, but I think for a first-time director, this does not feel like a first-time director's film um, in terms of the way that it's shot and composed and and the the timing goes, which I guess the comedy background helps with. Um, So, yeah, so Mm -hmm. I'll grant you that. uh, It is certainly a good performance from Jordan Peele. i will be interested to see what he does next.
1: Yes, um, directorially, I would say that there is a... What's the word? Because the word I was going to use, you just used already. I don't want to just repeat what you said. Um, (laughs) Yeah, there's a... (laughs) <laughs> there's a surety to it I think but so maybe then the issue comes down to the screenplay but it's it just feels like a cut and shut to me of, of things yeah. that had no business being next to each other being rammed next to each other but yeah, in terms of point. the the camera work and the, yes the tone and at least yeah for the most part the tone was being undermined by the ridiculous bit in the basement is works so yes there's a Yes, what you said. <laughs> so I can't find the other words just now. <laughs> but yes, but as for being tense from the start, no, um, I was more or less bored from the start. Felt Sli- a, a slight bit of tension a wee bit and then I got bored again. Not so good for me, I'm afraid.
0: <laughs> so then, Drew, perhaps the first of the big budget action tent of this year, Kong, Skull Island. What do you make of that then?
1: Yes, well, it is the end of the Vietnam War. And the US is in the process of repatriating its troops from Asia.
0: Is it? Oh, yes. I thought I thought we were a bit past that.
1: It's got in this crazy world in which we're living now, this <laughs> world in which the monkey will spank us. Um, who knows what's real? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Two representatives of a mysterious agency known as Monarch are desperately trying to get funding before the wartime excesses cease to mount an expedition to Skull Island where they hope to find monsters. Colonel Preston Packard, Samuel L. Jackson, volunteers his helicopter infantry unit to escort the monarch expedition and, in typically subtle military style, announce their arrival on the island by carefully mapping its topography using seismic charges. Bomb the s*** out of it to you and me. (laughs) This rather unsettles the local wildlife, particularly a sodding great monkey that the locals call (coughs) King Kong. Kong decimates the military force and the scattered survivors must attempt to reunite and fulfil their objectives, or in Packard's case, get revenge on Monkey Boy. These plans are complicated (laughs) somewhat by the island being full of numerous, enormous, deadly beasties and you just know that not many will survive. Now, you don't need to be told much more. It's a monster movie and I'm sure you know what to expect, at least in broad terms. The key to a film like this is always to get your audience so caught up in the action, however silly or implausible it may be, that they don't find themselves thinking, wait a minute, you're going to walk across this whole island in a couple of days. So that means it's a very small island, right? So all of those gigantic creatures we've seen would have eaten every viable food source within charitably a few weeks. Your ecosystem makes no sense. Now, the fact that I thought that very passage while watching this tells you as much as you need to know about how successfully Skull Island managed it, but it did have its moments and it's actually pretty hard for me to shut down that part of my brain entirely in any day. On the upside, it's vastly more entertaining than Peter Jackson's 2005 King Kong. A low (laughs) bar, I know, but (laughs) worth mentioning nonetheless. And while most of the humans are given little of interest to work with, the charmingly goofy John C. Riley is entertaining. And the design of the human settlements and artwork is pretty interesting. Crucially, the creature effects are impressive. Kong in particular, who has about 11 times more personality than most of the humans in the film. It's just a pity that they made Kong so preposterously large. He's four times the height of Jackson's creature. And yes, the ecosystem thing is still bothering me. <laughs> Particularly given that the chosen size is less to do with it being appropriate to this film but rather cynically is more to do, and I say more to do when I mean entirely to do, with the fact that legendary entertainment intends for Kong to go toe-to-toe with Godzilla in a future film. Where the film suffers is from feeling very much like it was pasted together from off-cuts from, or homages to, other things. It's a monster movie made by someone with an apocalypse now obsession, with dialogue straight from any, or possibly every, second-rate post-Vietnam War movie, and a soundtrack that wasn't so much carefully curated as lifted wholesale from the best of the seventy CD your dad bought for two quid at the petrol station. <laughs> Most of the soldiers are faceless creature fodder and disappear quickly, but the ones that stick around a little longer don't fare much better. Having any character at all, let alone any development of same, was obviously not deemed top priority. Samuel L. Jackson is operating on autopilot as the disgruntled Preston Packard, unwilling to accept the ending of the war. And when you can't really get much of an engagement out of Samuel L. Jackson, things aren't going well because he's generally at the very least watchable. (laughs) Non-military personnel get a pretty raw deal also, particularly Brie Larson's photographer Mason Weaver. I've taken enough photos of mass graves to recognise one, she tells us. Such insight and expertise. Sadly, anyone with working eyes and an understanding of the (laughs) words mass and grave is going to have no trouble recognising one either. Now, I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's all of the bodies that gives it away. <laughs> John Goodman is woefully underused, and you only need to look at Trumbull to see how much of an impact he can make with minimal screen time. Mm, yeah. And it is, shockingly, Tom Hiddleston that is the most engaging human after Riley.
0: I don't believe you for a second.
1: <laughs> Every other human, sadly, is entirely forgettable. Now, I'm not going into so much depth in this film because it's a monster movie, Right, that it doesn't merit it, and I w- wouldn't be much pointed at all. But I wouldn't so, go so far as, or even close, in fact, to say Kong Skull Island is good. But also, I can't say it's bad. I sat for a couple of hours, and it passed pleasantly and quickly enough. And I think that those more fond of creature flicks than I am will get a reasonable reward. I just would say, don't make any effort to see it if it comes <laughs> to you through any of your myriad boxes and devices. Wire in. Just don't really make any effort. To get to it,
0: yeah, I don't know. I, I quite like Sam Jackson's character in this. If his heart were an M102 howitzer, he would have fired his heart upon <laughs> Kong, which probably wouldn't have really helped with what's already a pretty serious medical condition. Yeah. Uh, it's going to require a great deal of surgery, so
1: I just thought of Samuel Jackson. This seemed like it, uh, something I'd seen them do a uh, hundred times. Oh, yeah, so there's uh, nothing there's nothing Very interesting. Much by the numbers.
0: I did watch this, and I have to say, I found Skull Island surprisingly enjoyable, but then again. That might be because I had no expectations for it whatsoever, and it might also be because I watched two Uwe Ball films on the same day, and there is nothing like making any film seem like a masterpiece in comparison than watching two Uwe Ball films immediately preceding it.
1: The cinematic equivalent to that idea that you should wear incredibly uncomfortable shoes all day so you get the relief of taking them off at the end of the day and feel pleasure from that.
0: Pretty much. Pretty much. I guess I kind of agree with you what we are saying. This, uh, this this, fell off the back of the internet for me. I didn't need to go to the cinema to see it. So um, I, I suspect my views might have been coloured one way or the other if I had to make a two-hour round trip to the cinema to watch it rather than just uh, clicking on a, a link. So, But that said, if I try and view this with some sort of isolation, I probably enjoyed it more than a great deal of the big budget effects uh, extravagandas from last year.
1: It's better than Godzilla. Yeah. I definitely enjoyed yeah. it a lot more than I enjoyed Godzilla. And it's mm-hmm. considerably better than Pacific Rim, which are yeah. kind of, two fairly recent obvious comparison points. Yeah. Uh, feature features aren't so common nowadays.
0: Yeah, and I, I concur. It's it's absolutely fine. I mean, there's not much that I really want from the kind of tentpole action film kind of thing. And this delivered most of it. It was perfectly enjoyable, mindless entertainment for a couple of hours. Lots of pretty decent performances, I thought, at least uh, engaging enough, certainly John C. Riley. If anything, you're probably right, it's got a hell of a cast on paper that doesn't really deliver all that much, but it's not really their fault, they're not really yeah, giving much to not, do. It's, uh, it's
1: not an acting issue, it's, they're just not given anything yeah. to work with, really.
0: Yeah, I mean they're all serviceable enough. I think only John C. Riley gets to really stand out. Mm-hmm. Samuel L. Jackson arguably could do better with what he's got. I think he's kind of just playing to the level of what he's been given, I suppose. But that's the—he's the only character that's got any kind of real, oh, I guess, fire or motivation to what he's actually doing, other than mere survival. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's a little disappointing to see him play it on autopilot. But Sam Jackson on autopilots generally not that bad, even still. Even still, so it uh, kind of gets away with that. I'm no great fan of the design of these. what did John call them? The Skull Creepers or something skull, like that? The, the
1: Skull Crawlers, I think. Crawlers, yeah, there's, those there's, are weird said, Now that things, I say that out loud, it sounds really stupid, but yeah, I think <laughs> Skull Crawlers,
0: yeah. yeah. Which, to be fair, it's the point he makes, it does sound stupid when you say out loud. And, um, yeah, that that doesn't. They didn't look so brilliant, but yeah. I can let it away with that. It's there not was something, though,
1: um, and I read a review in I think Empire, and I give them credit because they actually nailed what those things reminded me of. They look very, very like the first attempts of Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis in Beetlejuice to look scary. <laughs> <laughs> and now that connection's been made i can't unmake it <laughs> because i knew there was something that was it's like that reminds me a bit of something and i couldn't place it but it's like and i read that review and impact Ah, like, oh, there we go that's it yes <laughs> that was unexpected but at least i know now
0: yes uh, so for my money a lot that was a bit of a long-winded way of saying yes I, I pretty much agree with you it's probably not worth going out of your way to see but it's perfectly acceptable should you stumble across it yeah it's
1: one of those kind of lazy Saturday, Sunday afternoon type films. You know, if it pops up on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something like that, and you just, you know, that mindset of a silly throwaway thing to lounge in front of at the weekend, it's, mm. it fits the bill quite well for that.
0: A few thoughts on Twitter. Uh, one that definitely occurred to me while I was watching it from the uh, folks at the Exploding Helicopter, that's at Chopper Fireball on uh, Twitter oh, and of the really? this, is, this is full of exploding yes. helicopter fireballs yes. given that the helicopter pilots are incapable of flying beyond Kong's swatting range it's no wonder the
1: yank's lost in yam <laughs> and yeah that's, that's fair and a fair comment and uh yes they fly through that massive storm to get to the island and then apparently can't <laughs> avoid a, a slow moving yes. arm <laughs> backwards fly backwards <laughs> have you considered up <laughs> Yes. Unless he's got go-go gadget arms, <laughs> unless he's Inspector Kong, I suspect Up would afford you some sort of um, way of getting out of his reach. I
0: think you should really pitch that as a franchise. I think that's got legs and <laughs> arms Inspector as well, I suppose. Kong. Uh, yes. <laughs> Kong's head flips open and a helicopter flies at the top of it. Uh, right, that, that would work. I think that would work. I'd also, coming in from the Magic Lantern again, at lantern underscore cast on the Twitter, Kong is recommended if you so fetishise the apocalypse now that you actually want to have sex with it. Eight by the numbers soundtrack didn't help. Basically the Forrest Gump of kaiju films, which yeah, is uh, reasonable enough.
1: I was amused when I saw that they made the same observation about the soundtrack as I did. It's, it's all of the most obvious stuff, like all the credence and things like that. And it's like, really? Really, really? That's, that's the best you can come <laughs> up with? Come on. A bit of invention, please. I mean, it would probably just be grateful the entire film wasn't scored to Ride of the Valkyries, but still. <laughs>
0: Fair. I'm, not, I'm not sure if we wanted, you know, stunning originality. Kong Skull Island is the place to be looking for it. <laughs> no,
1: perhaps not. So then we move on to our final film of the episode, which is yet another live action remake of an animated classic. Although this one that I would genuinely describe as a classic, because I like this one, Ghost in the Shell, <laughs> Scott. Quite a controversial one, at that. Tell us about that. Yes. Top um, so front, have you seen Ghost and Shell? No. It's, I I wanted to see this, but I decided to watch Ghost and in Shell instead. Yes. <laughs> the actual, um, the original, right. once more. So I thought that was a better use of my time this week.
0: Spoiler warning: You're not wrong. Um, but I will try and abbreviate this. I have, I realised when I started writing up my notes for this that Ghost in the Shell is one of those topics where if you put 50 pence in my back, I will write for about five <laughs> hours on the subject. So when I got to about 2,000 words and three sides of A4, I probably need to truncate this somewhat. So I'll have some fairly extensive show notes going in if you want to check them out over at fundsonfilm.com and I'll try and give you the abbreviated version just so I'm not lecturing at you for like the next two hours. The warning sides come quite early in this Ghost in the Shell, the live-action adaptation, as you mentioned, of the anime classic, which we've talked about at least twice before in Podcast Passam, which should tell you how much I like it. Um, It starts with a wall of text explaining the basics of its world. It's set in the not-that-distant future, humanity having figured out how to interface directly with machines, and has embraced cyborgisation, replacing flesh and bone with metals and plastics. Now, my main issue with this text is not necessarily that it exists, it's that it shows everything that it says perfectly well in the next few scenes. Uh, I suppose it's good that this film is accessible to people with no rudimentary understanding of visual storytelling, I guess, but it's not a positive <laughs> sign for
1: how they want to treat the rest of the franchise. It's sort of people who you'd expect to watch a film as people who don't understand watching films. Mm. <laughs>
0: yes, yes, you understand my, my concern. Anyway, leading the field of this sort of robo-stuff is a company called Hanky Robotics, who are now developing the first fully robotic body, or shell, in the parlance of the dimes, which looks a great deal like Scarlett Johansson. Into this they plug the brain of one Mira Killian, who we're told had her body destroyed in the same terrorist attack that killed her parents. The CEO of Hanke, Peter Ferdinando's cutter, decides that Killian should be sent to Section 9, Japan's counter-terrorism unit, and a year later Mira's a Major in the same unit. The film presents those events just as breathlessly as I just did, in the hopes that you won't notice how none of that makes a lick of sense, due to how poorly the changes in the Major's past over the anime have been thought through in this adaptation. Anyway, if you let that slide... We're now more or less in line with the original, as Section 9, headed by Takeshi Kitano's gruff chief Daisuke Yamaraki, investigates attacks by someone calling themselves Kuze, played in this instance eventually by Michael Pitt, and Killian and her team are called to an attack on one of Hanke's senior staff by hacked Robo Geisha. Putting this (laughs) hacked Geisha down, Killian undertakes a risky connection into the downed machine's AI core, which gives her information on where Kuze is hiding out, but also puts herself in Kuze's sights. While Killian and her right hand man Batu, played by Pilou Rice Asbeck, follow Kuze's trail <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you've got you? Scott <laughs> uh, follow Kuzey's trail into a variety of traps and cool looking, if ultimately pointless action sequences, Kuze is busy progressing his plan, which appears to be to kill off everyone on the project that created Killian's shell. This begins the process of Killian having to question her past and her loyalties as the revelations come forth of things not being as they initially seemed, leading to an ending that's looking for a more cathartic, generally happy ending for the major than the anime, but winds up being the final length of rope that the film needs to properly hang itself. Now, all that probably sounds quite negative, and spoiler warning, I'm not really recommending this film to anyone, but there are elements in Ghost of the Shell that I can appreciate. It's certainly had a lot of considered work put into it, particularly on the aesthetic level. Even aside from the mix of practical and digital effects work, which is all very impressive, there's few films I've seen lately that pick a visual style and run with it as well as this does. While obviously it's inspired by the anime and the ball of inspirations that that took, there are hints of influences from other sources. Even video games, I'd be surprised if someone in the production design wasn't a fan of Mass Effect, and visually it's a treat with my only slight niggle being that it rather over-eggs the Blade Runner-esque holographic ads, blowing them up to skyscraper size and looking a bit daft in the process. The supporting characters of Batu and the Chief are well adapted, feeling like they're source material but not slavishly so, and both Azbek and particularly Kitano are given their moments to shine. A major role is also given to Juliette Binoche as Dr. Ulay, one of Hankey's chief boffins, It also winds up carrying almost all of the emotional intensity of the film, and does as well as can be expected, although really more of that should have been offloaded to Johansson. Uh, Narratively, though, it's a bit of a mess. It's going heavier on action than the source, which is fine, but these feel more like isolated islands of shooty bangs in a dense sea of cyberpunk waffle, uh, even more so than anime, which is already really at the limits of tolerance for that kind of thing. To a degree, it's a similar problem to that what we mentioned while talking about Spirited Away on a recent Miyazaki episode. The overarching goals of the character are clear enough, but the actions everyone are taking to get there don't seem altogether coherent, at least on the first view. particular mention goes to Kuze's cobbled-together network of hacked humans, which is a really awesome visual that has no relation to anything that's (laughs) going on in the rest of the film, as best as I can tell, um, unless I blacked out for the sentence where they mentioned what possible use it was. Perhaps it makes some sort of sense if you've seen the standalone complex stuff that Kuse has been taken from, uh, rather than the puppet master villain of the film. And so, as such, it becomes quite difficult to really care about anything that Ghost in the Shell offers up. This primarily is the film's problem. It's quite boring. Uh, Not all that surprising. It's something that you could probably level the original anime if you're not kind of buying into it, but the real tragedy is that they've minimised very many of the questions raised and left unanswered by the original anime. It was really the primary reason why people liked it. Perhaps we'll skip over the next eight paragraphs that I've written for this. <laughs> uh, but in, in general, it's one of these unfortunate cases where I can see everything that they've changed to make this more accessible to a wider audience has in fact made it a much less interesting film and therefore harder to relate to to a mass audience. But it's, it's a bit tragic. You could write a perfectly re- rational defence for all of the changes that have been made. You've got a kind of more obvious focus for a, an antagonist. Certainly, a more physical presence which you can relate to in a film. The problem is that it just isn't as interesting as the questions raised by the original anime, with its somewhat more theoretical antagonist also for, for parts of it almost. That's the kind of theme that pervades through it. It's made lots of slight changes mm-hmm. to the original anime in and hope of trying to, I think, widen the audience up a bit to try kind of make it a bit more mass market. And all of those have made it a more boring film. I think it would have had much more success had it either been slavishly original to the anime and not changed anything, or taken Mm -hmm. a a completely different approach and made its own story in this world, which I think is something that would have been perfectly achievable. If you look at the anime series itself, it's got two films, a couple of OVA series, uh, sorry, two TV series and a few OVAs based on those TV series, all of which have wildly different tones and stories. And I think mm-hmm. it might have been made more sense if they just tried to plow their own path and come up with something original for this film, rather than trying to almost sort of come up with something that's um, <laughs> like the original, but not quite get
1: there. It's a bit disappointing. A shame. Yeah, I mean, because I can understand why people would find the original potentially boring because the action sequences really aren't the point. Yes, it's all about the the questions about existentialism and. And that sort of thing, and about being and those things—that's what's really interesting. Yes, exactly. And if you hadn't quite got that point from the original, then I think maybe you'd you'd be bored. But it seems so strange to then to to make a remake of it, which has basically missed the point of the original. Ridley Scott yeah. wasn't involved <laughs> with this by any chance, was he? Uh, if you were quite Prometheusy. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I can understand why that would bore you the original but I think that's the whole point of the original is the the questions of existentialism and things and all the philosophy that's in there and then, you know, when you are a robot, are you a person? That's sort all. Of which so much other sci-fi has done as well but Ghost of the Shell did particularly well and to kind of that by the wayside and then focus more on the action instead. It's like, no, I hear okay when people miss the point. <laughs> yes, by yeah. all means, yeah, <laughs> just make a, a somewhat different film, make a more action-oriented film in the same universe, okay, but then we'll completely divorce yourself from the original film. You know, I don't yeah. know, it, it yeah. seems, it seems both pointless and to have missed the point. That's yes. not why they would bother.
0: Uh, there is a bit of an elephant in the room that I've kind of ignored because it's a bit spoilery, um, the whole um, casting of Scarlett Johansson's lead character in it. I think perhaps we'll just have to put that discussion on ice and I personally hope we can reconvene around this table about a year or so from now and talk about it. We'll maybe do a compare and contrast episode on this and the original because I think it does have some quite interesting uh, things to go into about the changes between what they've done to her character. They've not entirely changed it from the original <laughs> despite what uh-huh. I said earlier uh but I can't really get into too much of the details without getting into what I would consider spoilers for it so maybe we'll just have to park that uh, there's some there's some of that discussed in the show notes if you want to check them out I don't think it's quite as it's not quite as clear-cut as you might have expected from there. You know, like again it's another one of these things where I can I can see where the argument is and perhaps ironically the the real irony being that the the major Makoto, as I've read the character from the original anime would not care one little bit about what ethnicity or shell was titled to be. She'd be more concerned about the combat effectiveness of it all. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's a whole lot of things about cultural appropriation that we could get into, but probably best not served here. We would wind up being a little bit too close to the spoiler wind, I think, but let's just It's hard for me to get too excited about cultural appropriation anyway, because I'm British and our culture basically is appropriation. Uh, (laughs) If it's only your culture we've taken, you've got off quite lightly. We (laughs) normally take your land and your resources as well. So,
1: you know. You could go down quite a rabbit hole there with that discussion.
0: But I could talk about this film and everything else in the series for about five days, if you'll let me. So I'm trying desperately to rein myself in. I will say, just to reiterate again, this film looks gorgeous, but it's quite dull at the end of the day, which is really about, as you said earlier, is about as bad as soon as you can commit when you're in a cinema.
1: It will have some worth. It's very much style over substance.
0: Yes. Well, to a degree. It does have substance to it. I don't want to say that it doesn't have any substance there at all. It does have substance. It's just that substance is a bit boring. It's not a style over no substance at all. It's just not quite as good as it could have been on a number of levels. If you did enjoy the original animated film, there's something to be said for watching this film. I don't think it's something to be said in the terms of spending whatever it is these days to go to the cinema. Uh, going to the cinema is a, a major expense, a bit of a hassle, and frankly not worth it for this film. There's a bit dull. When this pops up mm-hmm. on your streaming services for quote-unquote free, give it a look, <laughs> and then we'll talk about it a few years down the line about when we've got a bit more distance from it and we can actually get into the the real meat and bones of it because. There's an interesting discussion there, but can't really get into it, especially when you've not seen it and I'm just talking to myself. So apologies if that's a little bit frustrating for you, but um, that's all I can do just now. Um, I don't recommend this adaptation of Ghost in the Shell. I think everyone involved in it's had their heart in the right place and done their best to produce something that's... Entertaining and visually stunning and all that kind of thing, but I think they've just missed the mark. and I don't think there's any ill intent behind any of it. I think everyone was really genuinely trying to do their best to come up with something entertaining, but I think they've fluffed it. And this is <laughs> a niche product that's been transformed in ways to try and make it more mass market that's actually just kind of made it no market at all, which is a bit of a shame. There's a great story to be told in live action in the Ghost in the Shell world, but this is not it. Um, if they'd come up with something original, I think they had a, had a chance. But yes, this. Is a swing and a miss. And yes, definitely not worth going to see at the
1: cinema. Boo. That's a disappointment. Yeah, particularly visually, like this film seemed like it was tailor-fit for a, a cinema screening. And um, Obviously, you'd yeah. hope there was substance um, behind it, but...
0: Yeah, look, um, to be honest, if I didn't know there was a Blade Runner film coming up pretty soon, I would say go and watch this just for the visuals of it, but... I think you're better off waiting until we see what Dennis Villeneuve's gotten up his sleeve for that. But I think he'll probably do a better job with the visuals as well as having a story to go along with it <laughs> rather than this Ghost in the Shell outing. Bit of a shame, bit of a shame.
1: I think we have one comment on Ghost in the Shell on Twitter. Again from Blake, at Blake Rice, Perpetual Dumb Machine, uh, who, whose comments on Ghost in the Shell are sharp, which was American, brainless, beautiful. <laughs> I'm guessing he wasn't particularly enthused by it either. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I guess that will take us to the end of this podcast. If you have anything you would like to talk to us about regarding any of the things we brought today or anything else, why not get in touch with us? You can do so probably the best avenue is Twitter. That's at FUDS on Film. You can also get in touch with us on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash FUDS on Film or through the old emails, podcast at film.com And as I mentioned... If if you've not seen any of the show notes and you want to get a bit more detailed on the Ghost in the Shell stuff, go to floodsonfilm.com and you'll see it there. You might also find it in your lyrics field in whatever podcast application you're listening to this on. We will be back with you on the 1st of May with a talk about some films based in LA. And until that time, you should take care of yourself and you should take care of each other. I have been Scott Morris and Drew Tavendale has been Drew Tavendale.
1: Fare thee well.